Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Hey guys, thank you so much for uh, joining us this morning. We're continuing on through our funky, weird series through Hosea. And uh, I don't know if this is going to be good or bad or if you're excited or not excited. Uh, we are We have substantially less usage of the word whoredom today. And so uh, if that's good for you, then congrats. If you're like, man, that's all I came for, then uh, sorry about that. We're actually switching up the metaphor a little bit today. <clears throat> today we're talking about God as Father. It's got me started thinking a lot about uh, me as a dad. It takes a while for it to sink in. You know, there's like this old joke that like uh, when ladies get pregnant, uh, they like know that their mom's in that moment, but the dads don't realize it till like nine months later, you know, like dads actually have to hold a baby in their arms. But I, I think it's even worse than that. You know, it takes a few years to really set in that like I have someone that would call me dad now, you know, it's a very strange thing. She actually left for the weekend. Who knows where she is? Uh, she's she's on spring break, so probably Cabo or something. I'm not really sure where Panama City, maybe. Uh, yeah, she's, uh, she's visiting my grandparents, I think, and, uh, having a good time, or my parents, excuse me, her grandparents. See, the dad thing confuses me, even to this day. Uh, I realized that, uh, I became a dad, I guess officially, you know, almost six years ago now. Uh, but just now things are starting to really, really settle in. Like, uh, I've started leaving places early so we can quote unquote beat the traffic. You know, like that's a dad thing. That's a skill that you have to develop. I've started uh, shouting about the refrigerator being open. You know, like I don't like that. We're not trying to cool down the whole house here, people. Come on. It's cold outside. Uh, I've actively shouted at a Lego and thrown it across the room after stepping at it in the middle of the night. That's a true uh, dad move right there. Uh, sometimes I find myself sitting out in the car with it cranked up and just waiting uh, for the girls to actually show up outside, which I feel like is a very, very dad thing. Uh, I've taken up piddling as a hobby. I think only dads can piddle. Are you familiar with this term at all? It's kind of like being outside and avoiding everyone else and not really accomplishing anything. Like I've already started spraying down weeds in our yard, even though they barely started growing, you know, and like that kind of thing. I feel like that's a very like piddling kind of dad thing. Uh, the other day, I sort of one-upped another dad at gymnastics. I was like, you girl can't even do a handstand. <laughs> right? Like, I've done that. Uh, but I think the most dad thing, I've realized this, I've started cracking jokes that I know Evie cannot possibly understand, and I don't even care. They're for my own enjoyment. I just crack my little jokes, and I chuckle to myself, and she's like, <laughs> Dad, you're lame, you know? And then, like, we just move on with our life. Uh, anyway, I'm actually just, I'm settling into it at this point, you know? Gonna start, like, leaning into, I think they call it dad core. It's like a whole vibe now, right? And it's amazing, you know? You could be a dad and be cool. You know, it's weird. If you're 22 years old and you wear cargo pants and, like, New Balance shoes, you're like, wow, he's so trendy. And then you do it at my age, and they're like, how sad. What happened to that guy? Did he just give up? But the cargo pants are nice, man. You can hold so much stuff in them, right? I don't know. Anyway, uh, today we're talking about God as Father. Um, and again, I'm sorry to those of you guys who came for a whoredom sermon. Uh, what's really interesting about this, and this is something that I've really been thinking about throughout this week, is like there are tons and tons and tons of metaphors for God in Scripture. And it's weird how we've been spending so much time in the book of Hosea doing a deep dive into this idea of like God as husband. And then all of a sudden, this very same prophet, Hosea, switches it up and starts talking about God as father. 
it's really got me thinking about the idea that like no one single metaphor no one single human relationship can really explain the relationship that we can have with god it's like putting him in the category of husband makes him like too narrow somehow and even for this one prophet located in this one piece of time who only had 14 chapters to his entire book even that like this one even lifestyle sort of metaphor that he lives out of like the wayward wife that is israel and him being the good husband that always brings her back even then it's not enough and so here in verse or chapter 11 he has to change it up it's interesting to note with that that very often i think we like limit our picture of god to one sort of metaphor that kind of most appeals to us right is he husband is he father is he friend is he lover? Is he sacrificial prince? Is he transcendent lord of the cosmos? I mean, all of these things can sort of capture who God is, but yet our sort of simple human brains, I feel like I can, at least if you're anything like me, I feel like I have trouble holding more than one in my mind at any given time. And yet somehow God is all of these things. It makes me think about like the stories that we tell to each other. That somehow God is bigger than any just sort of one central Christ metaphor, right? He's somehow Frodo, Gandalf, and Aragorn at the same time. He's somehow Arthur, Lancelot, and Merlin, who, if you think about it, are really the same three characters. Uh, he's somehow Simba, Mufasa, and Rafiki at the same time, I think, to just sort of, you know, spread the metaphors around a little bit. Uh, he's Harry, Dumbledore, and I want to say Hagrid at the same time for the Harry Potter fans out there. I don't really know. There has to be a third. Uh, I thought about it in terms of comics, too. He's uh, in, in Marvel. He really is represented by Captain America, Spider-Man, and Iron Man at the same time. That kind of like, you know, justice, goodness, battle kind of thing going on. In DC Comics, he's represented by Superman, Superman, and Superman at the same time. So there's a lot less depth there. Uh, he is some, simultaneously Aslan, but also the White Stag, but also the Coming Spring, you know, like even in like a direct sort of allegory, there's not one sort of central character that's from like Narnia for those of you guys, uh, who aren't so into the, the C.S. Lewis's, but, uh, it's a weird how even then in like an allegory kind of story, there's like one central character, Aslan, that seems like the most obvious God character, and yet it's so much more than that at the same time. And I think about this, in all the sort of good stories that we tell, there's these little glimpses of who God is. There's these little characters that we love so much for the way that they sacrifice for the one another, for the way that they stand up for justice, for the way that they love one another, and yet none of them can fully capture exactly who God is. The point is that we shouldn't put to God in too tight of a box. We shouldn't close him in. And all of our earthly analogies, though they might point to him, can never fully capture him and so if you've never really thought about god as father if that's not a paradigm that you use in your own mind or maybe even you have a lot of baggage with the word father uh which is completely okay i want you to just sort of like give it a shot today that's really all that i'm asking and try and understand what the prophet hosea is trying to communicate to the people of israel so let's jump in this is how the chapter starts off you heard it just a second ago it says when israel was a child i loved him and out of egypt i called my son the more they were called the more they went away they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols, yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. They did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. Do you see the intimate beauty of that? 
Like, instead of just saying, like, hey, God's kind of like our dad, instead the prophet Hosea launches into this whole thing where he says, like, he is the one that is teaching Israel to walk. He, Ephraim here, sort of symbolizing uh, Hosea's part of Israel. He takes them up by the arms. He leads them. He guides them. He binds them up with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And so what we're going to do the rest of the day is we sort of think about this idea of God being the father to Israel, to Ephraim, and to us at the same time. So we're going to look at this weird sort of emotional fatherhood journey that God goes on. And then we're going to ask the question, what does it tell us about God? And also, in some ways, what does it tell us about us as earthly fathers? Now, I'm a little bit reluctant to do this, uh, just percentage-wise, and I'm not a statistics guy. A lot of you are not fathers. Uh, somewhere around 50% of you, I'm sorry, will never, ever, ever be fathers. Yeah, I hate to break it to you. Uh, it's just the way the stats sort of shake out. It's not really an option available to you, I think. Uh, so uh, I'm not going to turn this into like, you know, awkward Father's Day kind of sermon or whatever. Obviously, it's a little bit early for that. But, you know, we celebrate Mother's Day for like a month, and then Father's Day we forget until the morning of and throw some macaroni down on a thing. So why not make this a second Father's Day, you know? Uh, no, something that we love doing here at Dwell Church is actually preaching through the text of the Bible and just sort of going verse by verse and letting that lead us. So all of that to say, while I don't want to go on a topic of, you know, a topical sermon of like three easy steps to be a better father, what we do have to do is recognize when the text actually starts talking about something that could be relevant to many of our lives and uh, and sort of see how it could apply to that. And so today, really, the central idea is what does it mean that God is a good and better father than any of our earthly fathers could ever be? And what should that tell those of us in the room who are dads, want to be dads, want to have a relationship with a dad of some sort, uh, want to sort of picture what a good dad can be? So let's jump in. Here's the emotional that he that he goes the emotional journey that he goes on. First, he gets angry, and we see this picking up in five through seven. He gets angry because his son has rejected him. He says this: "They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king." These are the sworn enemies of Israel, because they have refused to return to me. A sword shall rage against their cities and consume the bars of their gates and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High. He shall not raise them up at all. Then he moves to this next sort of phase. And I feel like if you're a dad, you're walking through all of these phases with me. This next phase, he's really like torn about what to do. At the first phase, he's like, man, the sword will rage their cities. And then in the second phase in verse eight, we see this. He says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. And then after this sort of torn, being sort of sitting in the middle kind of place, then he moves on to a place where he's resolved to restore Israel once again. He says, they shall go after the Lord and he will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their home, declares the Lord. Now, if you've ever been a dad, I feel like there are parts of this uh, parts of this whole little arc that God experiences that feel very sort of familiar to me. Right. It's sort of this anger turns into sadness, turns into restoration kind of arc. 
Now, you may not use as colorful language as God is using here, uh, but you kind of feel that sort of same way, you know, like uh, you show up one day, perhaps, and just sort of throw in this out there, and your daughter has broken something precious to you, and you want to shout at her and say that the sword shall rage in her cities, you know? Sometimes you got to go just a little bit biblical, you know, and like use the metaphors, right? And so I say, uh, you know, fire shall consume with the iron bars and that kind of stuff, you know? Throw a lot of that out at her and she doesn't really uh you know adhere to it or like really you know she doesn't really like i guess it doesn't appeal to her for some reason uh but anyway that's sort of how i feel then there's this next phase where you're like oh man i don't know i'm sure she didn't mean to like maybe it's not that bad you know like i'm kind of torn and that's when you kind of react with like oh my heart recoils within me my compassion grows warm and tender and then there's this uh this moment where you're sort of like moved to resolve this situation and restore her back to your good graces she said you say to her i will restore you You may stay in my home and when i roar you'll come trembling back inside right and that's kind of the way that my conversation with my five-year-old very often goes no, but I know this like process though, right? Like though this is not in any way that I would have couched it or presented it, this weird sort of feeling of like, man, I'm really mad about this. This is not good. I am angry about this and righteously so. Moving into this next phase of like, man, I'm feeling compassion. I am torn about this. I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to do. Moving to this next phase of like, how do I actually restore her? How do I actually bring her back and make sure that she knows that she is my beloved daughter? This is a very, very natural arc. And it's astounding. And I want to make sure that you don't miss it here. That this is an astounding sort of natural arc for me as just a regular human being father. And yet the God of the universe, the same one who made this covenant with Israel, the same one that made this agreement with them, is going through this exact same feeling, this exact same emotional arc. That should surprise us in two ways. First off, that God even has emotions. And second off, that they all at all mirror ours. You know, a lot of times we can think of God as just sort of this fixed point in the sky or something like that. But instead, all throughout Scripture, he is personified. He is brought into our understanding so that we might see, like, the things that we do actually hurt him. Things that we actually do cause emotional turmoil within him. The things that we do drive him to anger. They drive him to love. They drive him to, to do things to restore us back to him. Now, I know uh, that this might not necessarily uh, be sort of a comfortable topic for any of us or for some of us. Uh, a lot of us in this room, some of you had really great dads. Some of you had wonderful dads and you still have like a great relationship with them. Some of us in this room had uh, truly terrible dads. Most of us had something sort of in between, you know, I mean, dads just sort of fall all across the spectrum. I can say with some confidence that no one in this room actually had a perfect dad. And so uh, something that I've sort of picked up on over the years is especially if you had like a really, really, really terrible dad. I mean, the kind of dad that treated you no way or in no way, shape or form like the God that we see in Israel, the type of dad that treated you in a completely uh, undeserved way for you as a child, uh, the dad that was perhaps abusive, the dad that was somehow harmful to you. And it can be really, really hard to read this passage and be like, hey, here's this God that I'm supposed to love and trust. And here's this God that I'm supposed to follow. And he is aligning himself with the word father that I can't even just wrap my brain around how that could ever be a positive or good thing. 
The only thing that I'm asking you to do right now is not sort of undo years and years of, of trauma and baggage that has been built around the idea of a dad. Uh, I'm not asking you to sort of like unpack and then repack, deconstruct and reconstruct that entire concept in your mind over the next, you know, 15 minutes, something like that. All I'm asking you to do is to look into your heart, and this is true for whether you feel like you had a good dad or a bad dad, something in between, whatever that is. All I'm asking you to do is look into your heart and, and look at the things that you kind of expect and you hope for your dad. Look at the things as you're like thinking about what a dad is and what a dad is there to give to you, what a dad is there to represent. Look at that sort of like that hole. You almost can picture it like a cutout, you know, like in your like a little silhouette in your heart of what a dad is. And the truth is that none of our dads perfectly lived up to that. None of our dads were exactly what we wanted. But it's interesting that that hole still is there. You know, uh, we, Sarah and I are like uh, in the middle of like the training process for foster care, and it's astounding how even at like the most young of ages, and and you know a lot of our, our training is not necessarily like you know Bible-centered or anything like that. Like they're not coming at it from a Christian worldview. It's astounding how even at like three years old, like a kid that is just totally like getting the shaft in life and just getting the worst possible scenario and can have just a truly absolute monster of a dad still sort of like knows deep down in that kid's soul that he's missing something the kid knows that like he deserves something better than the dad that he has and that is just it's terrifying in that situation and i think it should tell us something about ourselves that maybe the things that we hope for the most that are actually impossible if you were just to look at the statistics should be the things that point us to the need for a good and perfect God. Like maybe that hole is there in your soul for a reason. You know, after like your grandmother dies, you look around and you feel like you wish that she was still there. You wish that she was around. But you have no reason to sort of wish that, right? People live and die every single day, and yet that hole still exists. And I think it's because we were made not to die. We were hardwired and built to not go through this life and death cycle. You know, you look at like something terrible and tragic that is happening across the world, like some sort of terrible war or something like that, and you wish, you wish that it would just end tomorrow and that justice would be served and that people would stop dying. But you really have no reason to wish that that would happen. The statistics bear it out. It doesn't make any sense. And yet somewhere deep in your heart, there is this desire to see that happen. And I believe that's because God made us to live a world that did not have war. God made us to be at peace and to desire peace. That desire is hardwired within us. And I think in exactly the same way, we're hardwired to want a good and perfect father. And even good dads, even dads that we have nothing but fond memories of, are just but a shadow and a glimpse of the good and perfect father that we have in God. So I'm not asking you again to rewrite your concept of dad. I am asking you, especially if you have a negative concept of what a dad is, that that hole that you feel inside, that hole where you feel like as a child you deserved something that you didn't get, that hole that is there, man, it should be validated and answered by your heavenly father. He's actually the dad that we always wanted. He's the good and heavenly father that shows us what a dad should be.
So here's what we're going to do as we walk through this text. I want you to take a look at these three or these uh, five things that we know about both good dads and God. God here representing the best possible dad. It also tells us about what good dads actually do. So first, good dads and God release. We see this in chapter uh, 11, verses 1 and 2. It says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. God here lets Israel go, which is fascinating to me. He's all the time just telling them, like, hey, uh, you guys go and do whatever you want. I'm going to tell you what you should do, but I'm going to give you complete freedom to actually do what you want to do. God seldom, if ever, uses his infinite power to control the entire universe to actually force us to do something that we don't want to do. It's kind of astounding, really, that he doesn't just like snap his fingers and turn us into little robots and say, like, hey, you go and do this, you go and do this. Sometimes we even beg for that, right? Like, have you ever been sort of like trapped by your own uh, terrible choices? You've ever been like in like addiction or something like that? And you're asking God, like, God, please just change my mind on this. Take away this desire. And yet God, in his infinite kindness and love for us, actually gives us freedom, gives us freedom to choose. He's saying the more that they were called, the more that they went away. They kept on sacrificing to these false gods. And I think that the reason for this, I think that God's sort of motivation in giving us freedom and actually releasing us to our own choices is that he is after our love, not our dominance. There's no way that love can exist in a relationship where someone is forcing someone to do something, to feel something, uh, where God and this sort of like power imbalance just sort of snaps his fingers and is like, hey, you love me now? That's not true love. No, he gives us the freedom to actually be able to chase after other things so that we can know how much we are to love him. So that when we come back to him, we actually get to experience real and true love for him. The same is true for good dads. Being a good dad and this sort of like weird sort of tension of like how much do you let them go? How much do you hold them tight? How much do you give them freedom? How much do you, you know, restrict their movement? That kind of thing. It's almost like giving a good hug, you know, I think, right? Like you squeeze and you squeeze. You let them know that you're there. You're holding on to them. But the second that a hug becomes inescapable, you know, I think it's no longer a hug anymore. It's like a restraint, I think they call it, something like that, you know? The second that a hug starts harming the person that you're hugging, it's probably not a hug anymore, right? Like you might be squeezing a little bit too tight. I think that's kind of like what being a dad is like. And throughout the course, I mean, I'm only like, you know, five, six years into this thing. Throughout the course of their life, though, it feels like a lot of times that hug is just slowly, slowly, slowly just sort of releasing its grip and letting them sort of further and further explore. But again, it's the only relationship that love can actually exist in. Giving them actual freedom to sort of choose you and not choose you is a painful process. It's a scary thing. But I think it's the only place where love can survive. Next, good dads and God both discipline their children. Now, this might be the most controversial hot take that is there. Uh, We want to believe that this is not true of good dads. We want to believe that this is not true of God, that they are not people who discipline. Now, uh, if you really want to sort of dive into this idea that God is not someone who disciplines, then I think it's going to be difficult to read uh, Scripture because it seems throughout that he's constantly doing this. In fact, what happens here, uh, we've talked about this before, Hosea is sometimes called the deathbed uh, prophet because here he is telling the people of Israel, hey, something bad, something terrible is about to happen to you, and then it does. In just a few short years after this, 
Uh, we don't know exactly the sort of pinpoint date that this passage was written, but uh, seriously, within 10, 20 years from this, uh, the kingdom of Assyria will come and conquer Israel. They will kill a bunch of them in this bloody war. Uh, they will take them away as slaves. They will uproot them from their homeland, and they will move them halfway across the known world at the time and then uh, force them to live in a different place, force them into slavery, force them into not worshiping their God. And this is the punishment that God is saying is coming to Israel. This tracks throughout the Bible. In fact, in the ancient book uh, of wisdom called Proverbs, where the Israelite people would actually track down all these sort of uh, wise statements, Solomon sort of collected all of these and said a bunch of these, and then the Israelite people would actually use them as ways that they might live better and teach each other how to be wise. It says this in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. It says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Somehow this good and perfect and loving God, as a part of that whole package of what it means to be good and perfect and loving and kind, also includes discipline. Now this is not said well with our modern sensibilities. Uh, for those of you guys who have, aren't parents yet, uh, one of the things that you get the joy of doing, and parents, I, I hope I can get an amen from this, is hearing all kind of cockamamie theories about what parenting is, you know? I love sitting around with a group of other parents, and, you know, we all have five-year-olds or something, and we're passing around these things, and I'm like, none of us know, you know? Like, we're only five years into this, and we're guessing. And it's weird, too, that we have to reinvent the wheel every time, you know? Like, every time a new generation comes along, then, like, 70 million parents books come out right and everybody's got this new theory we're trying out this new thing you know we've got to give this a new shot or something like that sometimes people will come up because I, I mean I don't want to brag but we have a really amazing child probably the best I would think uh, and she uh, sometimes people will come up and they'll be like this happens daily Josh how do you do it how are you such a good parent you should write a book and I always think to myself, okay, that doesn't really happen all that often, but I always think to myself, like, why in the world would I write a book before Evie's 30? Because at the end of the day, this is like a long, like, if we just want to trust the scientific method in this, this is a long hypothesis. And I'm like, yeah, she's good now. I can give you a book on how to create a decent five-year-old, you know, maybe, right? <laughs> I don't even know about that. I don't even know what the genetics play into it, and she's probably 90% Sarah. But I feel like I could throw out some good guesses. But as far as creating a good human being... You know, man, like right now, think about how long it takes to actually grow a human adult, right? I mean, men don't become adults now till like probably mid-30s. I'm not even there yet. I'm still trying to figure it out, you know? Like, uh, imagine when Evie grows up. You'll probably have to be 80 to be an adult, but you'll live to like 160. So it'll, it'll all work out. It comes out in the wash, you know? But either way, I'm saying like, man, I don't really, really know anything. But one of the craziest things that's happening right now, and I, I feel confident to speak on this, like I am not, I'm not up here to talk parenting methods or anything like that, like, you know, you do you. But I feel like what I'm seeing here in Scripture, both from this Proverbs passage and from Hosea, and just God's representation throughout all of Scripture, is that a parenting style that does not include some form of discipline is probably not an actual healthy form of what it means to parent. And we see this all the time. 
That's the weird thing. You know, you're sitting around the playground, you're hearing somebody throw out, well, we, you know, we're not so big on the word no. We don't like to tell him no. And I'm like, your kid has a hypodermic needle in his mouth that he found on the playground. I think a no would be appropriate here. <laughs> you know, like, I don't want to, you know, mess up your vibes or anything like that. But come on, there has to be a limit at some point. Now, this is true for, like, goofy, terrible parenting experiments that we're all sort of walking through. But, man, I think it's true for us as human beings, too. We don't really like a dad that has discipline. We don't really like a God that has discipline. It feels harsh to us. It feels uncomfortable. It feels like it's inappropriate somehow. It's not what we are made for. But, man, I think if we were to sit down and really think... Think about the way that we've been living our lives. Think about the way that maybe we were brought up. Think about the way that we were raised. Some forms of disciplines, even if it's just sort of bumping up to our own logical and natural consequences, have been extremely helpful and meaningful in our lives. That means that we as dads, first off, I'll just sort of take that to, to heart and ask the question, what would good and healthy and beautiful discipline look like in our children's lives? And I think that means us as every single human being in this room ought to take that to heart and ask, what does that look like from God? I mean, this was not a light discipline for the people of Israel. I mean, if we, I'm going to sort of hold myself back from telling the entire story one more time. But basically, you know, they were given everything as a part of this, like, horribly imbalanced covenant. God's like, hey, uh, if you can just, uh, like, I'm going to give you everything on, in the world. Like, I'm going to make you the greatest nation on the planet. I'm going to give you a land filled with milk and honey. I'm going to give you everything. And Israel's like, great, what do we have to do? And he's like, well, if you could just not make up false gods and murder each other, that would be great. Like, if you could just sort of do that. And they were like, nah. I don't think we can do it. The other day we were having a sermon meeting in the coffee shop. I was like, this covenant would be like if Troy, the owner of the coffee shop, was like, Josh, you can come in here and sit in here for free. You don't even have to buy anything. And I was like, great. And then I brought in an espresso machine and sat it down at my table and was like, all right, uh, does anybody want to buy some coffee? You know, like it's a strange thing. Like we look at this covenant and we're like, oh, God gave them all these rules. Like it was nothing compared to getting everything. And then he gave them pathways to sort of like restore themselves. So anyway, he gives them all this stuff. He gives them this promised land. He sends them out and he says, hey, follow me, follow me. It's going to be good for you. If you can just follow me, not make up these false gods, not chase after these pagan gods. And then as a form of multi-generational punishment, a form of punishment that Hosea did not even get to see the end of, God sends them off to live in a foreign land under pagan rulers who will not even allow them to pray to this God. He lets them be conquered. And while he would restore Israel, Israel would never again have the same sort of power and authority over and control over this region they had at this particular moment. They threw it all away. And what's really beautiful about this is that Israel had to live with this God who was both simultaneously blessing and also disciplining so that they could understand the benefit of the blessings. They had to know how good it was when he was blessing them. But they also had to know how horrible and painful it was when he had to discipline them. Because unless they actually knew the true cost of their sin, unless they knew the true cost of their waywardness, they would never appreciate the good and perfect gift that Jesus came or that God was sending them in the form of Jesus. They would never know the actual weight of their sin. 
They would never know how much it actually cost, how much it pained and hurt God whenever they were wayward, whenever they were sinful. And this was the great cost that Jesus had to pay. Our best hope for those of us who are fathers is actually to mimic God the Father here. Both with love and with discipline. And the hope there is that in understanding the cost of what it means to do something wrong, understanding the cost of what it means to sin, even in a small sort of household context, even understanding what that is in our child's life at a very, very young age, Let's them understand the deep and meaningful need that they have for grace in their life. If you live in a world without consequences, then you live in a world that has no need for grace. All right, soapbox over. You guys can at me on Twitter if you could find a Twitter account that I have. I don't know if I have one. Anyway, uh, second or third, gods and good dads both love. Hopefully this one is not surprising to you. Uh, You've had a bad dad indeed if they do not even pretend to love. And I know that that might be the case for some of us in this room. But check out this passage in verse 8. It says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Abma? How can I treat you like Zebuin? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. This is true and beautiful. This is the actual heart of God that while even while he is meeting out fair and honest justice on the people of Israel, even when he's given them every opportunity to turn back and then he finally has to enact what he said he's going to be enacting, right? Like he sends Hosea to tell them, hey, Assyria is coming. They don't turn back. And then even when he has to bring Assyria to bear, still his heart is torn. It recoils within him as if compassion grows warm and tender. This is the truest embodiment of this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. This is a true love that actually causes pain. What's astounding about this, too, that you should see about the God of the universe is that he's not this sort of like static character up in the sky. You know, it's not just this like fixed point. He's a God that feels should tell us something kind of interesting about our own emotions, too. That a lot of times we feel like if we could reach this sort of perfected state that we wouldn't have emotions anymore. You know, if we were just completely content and at peace in Christ, then we'd be unemotional beings. And that is not the case at all. The God of, you, of the universe is here modeling emotion for us. He is torn. He's feeling compassion even when he has to do what he has to do. He's feeling compassion even when he is meeting out justice on his people. This is the true love of a father. And it's a challenging thing. It's one thing to love your child when you're holding them in the hospital. It's one thing to love your child when they're doing something really cool and impressive. But man, it is a challenging thing and gives you just a little taste of the difficulty a father uh, has or the difficulty that God has when you're actually loving your child, when they are harming you, when they are doing things that harm themselves. And sometimes when they're just frankly annoying, man, it gives us a glimpse into who God is. It gives us a chance to sort of try to live up to his standard, then fail, and then accept his good and perfect grace for our lives. All right, I should move on. Uh, number four, they protect. Good gods and good dads protect. When God decided to restore his people, he comes at their enemies like a lion. 
See this beautiful passage in chapter 10? They shall go after the Lord, and he will roar like a lion, and when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. Isn't it fascinating and beautiful that here, God is both a father, or he is a father, and as such, he is both loving and protecting? You've got this sort of like cool balance, you know, like where he's like simultaneously gentle and tender and emotional enough to actually love and care for Israel. But he is also strong enough to come roaring in like a lion. I mean, the first analogy that we got in this entire passage was God holding up the arms of a toddler, trying to help them to walk. And now God is referring to himself as a lion that will roar. And when he roars, his people will be able to come back. This makes me think a lot of like my dad. I always thought he was this sort of like odd balance of just sort of like strong and cared for me. You know, like I grew up, he uh, he worked for a living, you know, not like me, just sort of like sitting around thinking and reading a lot and talking to people. Uh, he actually like worked outside and had those big like outside man hands, you know, and I just it was like I would come to him with just sort of impossible tasks just under the assumption that he was naturally able to do it. You know, he was able to sort of like accomplish whatever. And yet he also had this soft side. Now, we didn't really like find it out until later. Uh, Grandpa softness kind of comes out later on in life, you know. And now he's like sitting around watching Hallmark movies and just sort of this teary eyed old gentleman, you know, but still like strong enough. Now, he doesn't ever roar like a lion. That doesn't really happen too much in our family. But it's weird, like a good dad, I think, sort of captures this essence of both gentle And also strong, gentle and also protecting, loving and protecting at the exact same time. And this is the balance that God strikes here in our lives. That he is a God who can always take care of us and he is a God who will always love us. Sort of the best of both worlds. It's everything that we want. Finally, good gods and good dads restore. We talked a few weeks ago about uh, the dichotomy between God's love and his justice that it's easier for us to sort of conceive of them if he is just sort of equal parts both or even some sort of paradoxical 100 parts both, which is kind of true. But if you like look back on the history of God and you look back on the way his, that he treats his people, as far as love and justice are concerned, he is far overweighted towards love. If he was a God just of justice, then we would never have Jesus, right? He's a God that loves us enough to actually send his son to come and restore us no matter the sin no matter the punishment, because in the end, he always restores. We see this in verse 11. It says, they shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. These are both places where the people of Israel would run and hide. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. What he's doing here is actually foreshadowing the book of Nehemiah and Ezra. See that uh, Israel would be captured by Assyria, then, uh, or I guess Ephraim, the northern kingdom, would be captured by Assyria. Then Judah would be captured by Babylon. They'd be sent off into these foreign kingdoms. They would have to live under these foreign kings. That's where we see books like Daniel. Um, And in this time, uh, God starts calling some of his people back to Israel. And so he calls back people like Nehemiah to come back and rebuild uh, the city of Jerusalem. He calls back Ezra to come back and rebuild the temple and reestablish the law in the land. And so what he's doing here is actually Hosea gets this tiny glimpse, though everything that he's talked about so far has been so dark. He actually gets a glimpse of the one day restoration of Israel. That they'll come back trembling like birds. I kind of love that image, don't you? you? Ever think about like how kind of skittish birds are? 
Now, I'm not talking about the geese around Sloan's Lake. Those things are monsters, right? They're basically dogs with feathers. Like, they're just, they're insane. They're not skittish at all. But birds, you know, you kind of like you, like if you run past like a bunch of seagulls or something like that, they'll move out of your way because they're kind of sketchy and scared of you. And then they kind of come hopping back, you know. They got this kind of like trembling, like they're not quite sure about it. And that's how God brought back the people of Israel. And I think the reason for this kind of metaphor is because even when we come back, even when God restores us back, a lot of times I just don't even believe it. You know, we're kind of like skittish about it. We're kind of coming back and we're like, God, you can't restore me from this. God, I did something terrible. You set me up to do this thing for you. And instead, I like did the exact opposite. God, you set me up because I was supposed to be this person, but I let everybody down. God, you set me up and I was supposed to be this good guy. I was supposed to do the right thing. But if they found out what I did, there's no way that I could ever possibly be restored. God instead is the roaring lion who comes to protect us and brings us trembling back, knowing that we are feeble, that we are broken, that we are coming back stumbling because we can't even trust the goodness of God, and yet he is continually bringing us back. The point is that God as Father is always, always restoring I mean, you might be in a place right now where you feel like you're sort of in this phase of discipline where you feel like, Maybe you're just sort of experiencing the harm, and, and in the moment, man, it feels like there is no possible way that God could ever bring you back. It feels like you've gone too far. It feels like you have left him too much. You've been away from him for too long. You've been pushing, you've been running, and going away from him. But even in that moment, and maybe even especially in that moment when you don't feel like you deserve to be restored, that is when God and his loving kindness of being a good father is there and calling you back. I love this picture that we've seen through this chapter in Hosea of God being a father who is patiently waiting to restore his people. And I love the way that it's sort of like a lot of times when you find something really good and beautiful and true about God in Scripture, there's sort of like these fingerprints of it all across Scripture. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.